This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In a world awash in weapons, it's easy to believe that war is inevitable and that people are powerless to change the system. Our guest today, Mary Wynne Ashford, believes differently. A leader in the international peace and disarmament movement for over 20 years, she's the author of Enough Bloodshed, 101 Solutions to Violence, Terror, and War. Focusing on the power of ordinary people to make a difference, she gives us inspiration and hope that peace is not only possible, but can be fun along the way. Ashford is past president of International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize. Mary Wynne Ashford, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks very much, Nathan. It's good to be here. Well, uh, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. I hope you're having the lovely weather we're having here in, in Canada. Oh, really? Is it is it nice up there? You're in British Columbia? I'm in British Columbia, and it's beautiful and sunny this morning. Yeah, well, well, we've been having about 90-degree weather with uh, with fires surrounding us. Yeah, but oh, but no. other than that, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. A lot hotter than <laughs> yeah. we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've had some steamers here. So, Now, you retired from uh, from uh, uh, your practice, I, I think, in 2003, is that yes, right, or I clinical did. medicine? I retired so that I could write this book, and, and well, uh, it's, it's just really been wonderfully gratifying to be able to um, find success stories about how ordinary people have brought about change in their communities and have succeeded in overturning dictatorships and bringing conflicts to an end without war or bringing wars to an end. Now, was there a particular in- inspiration back then in 2003, or did, did you just make a personal decision to change? No, the publisher and Guy Dauncey actually approached me, because Guy is writing a series or editing a series of books on solutions to the world's problems, the major issues. So he wrote the first one about global climate change, and then they contacted me to see if I would do this one about violence, terror, and war. And I had been collecting as I was... Working in the uh, disarmament movement over the past couple of decades, I had been fascinated by these examples of very courageous people who had taken creative and sometimes very funny, comical uh, initiatives that had had a major impact in their own communities. So I'd been kind of holding on to those and thinking, isn't it remarkable, the human spirit? So when they said to me, would I look at 101 solutions, by which we don't mean permanent solutions, we mean actions that people take that move things forward to a a more peaceful world. They asked me if I would do this. I said, well, I've got about 50 of those already collected. That, That should be quite easy. And then once I'd signed the contract, I thought... Uh oh! What if there are only fifty examples? Yeah. <laughs> but there are literally thousands of examples, and I've had to clump them, and uh, I've put them into different categories of things women have done and women can do, things that children have done and can do. Just point out that children have had a major impact on the world because Mikhail Gorbachev wrote in his book Perestroika that he was deeply influenced by the hundreds of thousands of letters he received from little children asking him not to use nuclear weapons, and that that played a major part in his decision to work toward nuclear disarmament. 
I'm yeah. just going to say over the last few days, there's <clears throat> been nothing but bad news, it seems like, coming out of the Middle East. Oh, and, and I think, such a heartbreak uh, to see what's happening and to see the that Lebanon is back into a state of war and that Israel and the the entire Arab world are really in a in a terrible state at loggerheads. And of course, I don't agree with what is happening on either side. I don't agree with the use of of um, weapons that are killing civilians in the, in the major part. I don't agree with them killing soldiers either, but uh, it seems particularly tragic when families and innocent children are killed by these indiscriminate kinds of attacks. And I think that this is the time when we actually have to intervene as a global community to move the Israelis, the Palestinians, and the other uh, Arab groups to a place of of resolution of this conflict. And I believe that we've been very, very close a number of times. But it takes outside support as well as the moderates on all sides to come together and bring an accord. But I think unless we resolve this quickly, we are going to see just a terrible conflagration in the Middle East. Well, I... I just read a news uh, report that said uh, Newt Gingrich had uh, called this World War III, or at least he advised the president to to wait until September near the elections to call it World War III. And with all this talk going on of of uh, World War and, and the violence going on there, is there is there an example that you could give us of of one of the hundred and one solutions that that rings uh, true with this situation? Well, let me first just say that although this war is apparently exploding, overall, if we look at the situation in the world, the number of wars has decreased dramatically since the end of the Cold War in 1992. Major wars are down by 80%, that's 80%. And the minor wars, internal wars, are down by 40%. There have been 60 dictators toppled without violence. And, uh, you know, those are very, very impressive changes. So what we're seeing is that not only is the United Nations uh, working, but also international law, <coughs> excuse me, is, uh, is much stronger. And the major role that is played by international civil society is an extremely part, extremely important part of this change away from war. So just as as background, I'll say that. And then I would say we need to look at other conflagrations that have been brought to an end when people, and often it's a great statesman, but usually with the backup of the people, when people have decided that they've had enough. And you can think of Northern Ireland, where finally they brought all the parties to the table and began serious negotiations that eventually resolved that conflict. In the, and in the case of Israel, I think it's, although in many ways it's been disheartening to have Hamas elected, in another way it provides an opportunity because they are now at the table as the serious negotiators. There is a party that has to negotiate on behalf of everyone. So although it makes life very difficult, it's not impossible. The other thing is that we know so much more about how negotiations can work and can be uh, successful, often with people working behind the scenes, not in the public eye, that I think that we can be far more hopeful than in the past. 
in at this time, though, it is essential that countries like the United States and Canada not support just one side. They must be calling for justice on both sides. They must condemn violence by both sides, and they must say, we have to have a peace that will provide security and justice for everyone concerned. Otherwise, it won't be stable. What One of the... Uh this is Mike. I wanted to point out that, or one of the reasons why I think we're seeing a, a broader expanse of peace movements and people involved in those movements around the world does somewhat relate to the uh, peace movements of the Americans during the Vietnam War. One of the legacies of that movement was the building of s- sort of solidarity groups around the world, the ability of of the uh, the Vietnam anti-war Vietnam um, movement was that they began to expand out around the world and that has provided a tremendous platform for a lot of these. uh, I completely agree and they gave a a model, they gave the demonstration of young men who showed that it was courageous to stand up against war just as uh, those who go and serve in battle are seen to be courageous. These young men had to make enormous sacrifices. Many went to jail, of course, and uh, many fled to Canada and, and have remained in Canada since the Vietnam War. But the fact that they stood up and said, this war is not uh, a just war and we refuse to serve was uh, an enormous role model for the rest of the world to say, that's right, we have to resist injustice wherever it shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that is uh, and, and, and we're now seeing the benefit, the, the fruits of that, that movement uh, around the world. That's not to say that there weren't peace movements and people acting uh, on their own in their, in their different countries around the world. We're certainly not the originators of, of this idea. But the, um, I, w- I want to uh, go back. W- help me out on this one. Uh, as I recall, there was a, a toppling of a dictator, and I want to say it was Georgia, or not Georgia, it was one of the uh, former Soviet states in which it started out um, with demonstrators in a public square, and they were essentially... Uh, doing guerrilla theater. Does this ring a bell? Was called. Oh, was, called was it called? That the, actually, has been the case in a number of different places. The Green Revolution. In, am I getting that right? Was that? Is in that, which one? Yeah, it was called. Was it called the Green Revolution? Or no, there was an Orange Revolution. Orange there Revolution. Was a, there's, uh, there have been several vi- um, velvet revolutions, and you may have been thinking of of Czechoslovakia. Yes, you may I have been thinking of the. Um, in the Ukraine and in Georgia. Georgia was the Rose Revolution, and that one, all of them use uh, theater and music especially. That's my point, is they start out with very sort of artistic endeavors as a way of... Exactly, and and they brought out people to hear the music, including the Philharmonic Orchestra, um, to... and. They encourage people to enjoy themselves, and the people stay. It's mainly that they refuse to go home. There you go. That eventually uh, forces the dictatorship to to step aside and to yield to the will of the people. And these these revolutions have been happening. Gosh, there's been more than one every year now for several years. Mm-hmm. As we watch the old Soviet bloc kind of uh, turning toward democracy. And it's interesting to note that 
although, say, in the Ukraine, they were able to topple the dictator, it didn't necessarily mean the end of all the problems. It's just like our own countries, that you have to protect democracy once you've finally got it. Mm -hmm. And you've got to ensure that people have the um, ability to vote and that the people you elect are accountable back to the population. So the, the revolution must be just extraordinarily exciting and euphoric, but in the end it all comes down to hard work again. Yeah. Being able to have, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Mary Wynn Ashford, and her book is Enough Bloodshed. And uh, it is a, a book that identifies, the first part of the book sort of identifies what the, the situation is around the world. And then you said about um, laying out solutions uh, in very creative, uh, very creative solutions to what look like intractable problems. Is there is there one solution that really stands out in your mind? Is there? Oh, is there, there, there are so many, but the one that that I always think uh, is so astonishing is the case of Lucknow, India, where at a time when uh, the country was just exploding in violence between Hindus and Muslims because a group of Hindu extremists destroyed a Muslim temple. This was in 1992, and they destroyed the temple at Ayodhya. And uh, around India, there were just terrible riots, and thousands of people were killed, but not in Lucknow, even though Lucknow is close to Ayodhya. And the reason, apparently, that Lucknow was spared most of the violence was that in 1959, a young couple had established a Montessori school. You're you're probably familiar with Maria Montessori's kindergartens. A Montessori school that also taught Gandhian principles of nonviolence. And since 1959, that school has expanded and expanded until now it has 22 campuses, and they put through about 30,000 students a year. So some 250,000 adults had gone through that program over the past 40 years. And the result was, when this temple was destroyed, the city mayor called on the head of the school, and they brought together the religious leaders, Hindus and Muslims and Christians as well, and other religions, and said, what are we going to do to prevent our community from breaking into violence? So they ended up with meetings every morning of the the separate religious communities to say, we don't need to turn to violence. And they had children and parents out walking in the street for days and days with little um, jeeps with loudspeakers and children saying, the God of the Muslims and the God of the Hindus is the same God. We don't have to fight one another. And they were successful. They simply established the climate that our city is not a city that breaks down into violence. And then there's one more example I just love that that many people keep asking me to tell these stories about Bogota, Colombia. Now, my image of Bogota, Colombia is that it must have been one of the most violent cities in the world, and certainly it was um, a city of crime and and enormous um, violence on the streets. It wasn't safe for women to walk in the evenings and so on. And they've had a series of mayors, the last three mayors, who have been extraordinarily creative. And there's one in particular who was trying to deal with the issue of um, cars jamming the roads and speeding and not um, not paying attention to um, pedestrians and a huge number of traffic fatalities. So he replaced the traffic police with pantomime artists. <laughs> And the traffic all slowed down, and 
the people paid attention and then the, the traffic fatalities dropped dramatically. But he carried on the same kind of attitude toward other things in the city. He used a creative approach that recognized the dignity of people, didn't try to coerce them, but tried to encourage them to join in to the, to the pleasures of being a community. One of the other things he did was, because it was dangerous for women to be on the street in the evening, he declared three evenings that were for the women only downtown. And uh, and there were going to be jazz concerts and cafes open and so on. And some of the men complained and said, we absolutely have to be downtown. And he said, oh, I didn't mean that you couldn't go downtown, only that it would be wonderful if the men stayed at home and cared for the children. But if you have to be downtown, just write yourself a certificate of safe passage, and it's fine for you to go downtown. (laughs) Well, 700,000 women went into the downtown area for three evenings in a row and and strolled and had coffee together and went to jazz bars and so on. And it it changed the entire atmosphere of the community. And now, according to the New York Times, Bogota is a safer city than Baltimore or Philadelphia. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's amazing. That is. I've got one. I'm going to make a a sweeping statement based on purely (laughs) anecdotal uh, evidence here, but it seems from what we're describing uh, here and in, in your book that that we're, people are increasingly looking to non-governmental uh, organizations to to bring uh, a peaceful solution to these problems. Is that a fair statement? That's that's a very fair statement. People trust civil society. We call them. Uh, more than just the NGOs, we call it civil society because it includes everybody outside of government or the military or the big corporations. And I don't mean the workers in the big corporations, but I mean those who identify themselves as the big corporations. So those of us who are working in these various movements, whether it's peace or human rights or women's issues, uh, we are not making a profit from it. We are working because we want to uphold a certain set of values, values that say that all people are worthy of uh, respect and compassion and dignity, and that nonviolence is the way to solve conflicts, not violence, and that we have a responsibility to the earth as well. So the public tends to trust people who are speaking uh, on the basis of these values rather than those who are who are who stand to make a profit well, i was going to say government has increasingly become the province of the venal and the corrupt isn't and that's a, that's an unfortunate i think that's what i think and and they're not they're not as likely uh, to to uh, to step up as as these non governmental agencies are. That's right. And when they they do step up and and do something good, we unfortunately we kind of mistrust it and wonder if we've misunderstood the issue that all of a sudden government is in favor. Right. But it's important that we change that. We have to bring accountability into our government exactly. because we have to be re- represented there, not not just big money. Right. It is it is the the, the one of the one of the great benefits of government is a sense of accountability. Yeah. You don't have that if you're relying on the largesse of major moneyed corporations or individuals. You certainly don't have that the mechanisms uh, of, of accountability. No, uh, and, and of caring universally for everyone. Right, right. They, yeah, exactly. I want, there was a, um, back in the uh, early 90s when the, the war in uh, Bosnia Croatia, Serbia was was taking place. There was a lot of uh, 
international attention focused on that area. And one of the things that came to light was the use of of rape as a as a tool as a way of uh, of terrorizing a population. There was a tremendous amount of that going on, or at least that was the reports of that yeah. going on. And um, it, it that's going on today, right? We're st- we're it's still going on today, and the particular example is in Darfur, yes. where it's really horrifying because they know that about sixty percent of the armed forces in Africa, in that region, have HIV or AIDS, and. Uh, what that means is that the, then they're, they're raping very young women and girls, mm-hmm. and it means that after the war and the conflict is over, those women are condemned. And, and I mean, uh, literally, they're put to death. They're, well, they're excluded from their Ex- communities yeah. if it's known that they have HIV or AIDS, uh, or full-blown AIDS, I should say. Um, but also, if they have a baby, the baby is likely to be infected. And it just <clears throat> it compounds tragedy in just the most callous way. I, I find it really difficult to understand and to accept that any group of people could be perpetrating this kind of brutal well, uh, brutal attacks on women. Um, women are working against uh, war as a against rape as a crime of war, of course. And one of the really strong initiatives is one at the United Nations, which is called Resolution 1325 of the Security Council. And this is a resolution that w- that has been passed by the Security Council but not implemented. And what it does is it says that women must be a part of all peacemaking teams, of all negotiating teams, of all peace-building uh, committees and groups after a conflict is resolved so that the issues of women and children are brought to the front, and also so that the views and perspective of women will will be a part of the negotiations that go on. And that would be a wonderful thing if, in the negotiations in the Middle East, women were an equal part of all of those teams working to bring about change there. And, and Do you that, have any feel how that resolution is, is doing in the Security Council? Well, it's not moving ahead, but the interesting thing is the United States and Canada have both declared themselves as friends of 1325. And I think that if we actually wrote to our government and said, it's time for you to be more than a friend, it's time for you to actually take a stand and get this resolution implemented, and they could begin it by appointing women. They don't have to wait for countries to elect women to these positions. Our countries and and other, we're not on the Security Council, of course, but the U.S. is. Our country is, Canada is is influential at the United Nations, and we could certainly be calling to have women appointed to positions on all of these various different peace teams. And uh, that needs to move ahead, and it needs to move ahead quickly. We're speaking with Mary Wynne Ashford, and uh, she's uh, written a book called Enough Bloodshed, 101 Solutions to Violence, Terror, and War. And one of the reasons I was bringing up the situation uh, in Bosnia was it did provide, a, you know, certainly as tragic as the circumstances were, it did provide an opportunity for the world to be focused on this idea of the effect of war on women, in particular, and children. It, it always they're the ones who always bear the greatest burden in a in a in a violent situation. Um, but it also, in my mind, it points out how important it is for what I believe to be the single most important advancement that we could make in terms of civil rights is the uh, making 
equalizing women's rights around the world. If we, if we had equal rights, equal access to education and job opportunities for women in the world, I think it would go a tremendously long way towards solving many of these seemingly intractable problems. You are absolutely right, and it's now come out in some new research that I just read a couple of months ago uh, from 2005 that shows that there are statistics to demonstrate that when you when women have the vote when more women are elected to federal government when more women are working in the labor force and and uh, especially if it gets as high as 40% of the labor force being women and if women are able to control the number of babies that they have then you find those countries are far far less likely to use violence in in uh, resolving their conflicts especially internally and in our countries we need to get the number of women at the federal level up above 30% and then we'll start to see some some major changes in the way our governments behave at the moment in the US and Canada it's somewhere between 14 and 20% of the federal government is uh, elected women well mary wynne ashford thank you very very much the book is enough bloodshed 101 solutions to violence terror and war you have a website and... There's a website uh, for the whole Solutions Project, which is called EarthFutures.com. EarthFutures.com. Okay. And my own website is not quite ready yet, and it's called EnoughBloodshed.ca. All right. Enough. Okay, okay. We've world... Okay, great. Thank you very, very much. We will, uh, thanks for being on Weekly Signals. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.